Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Nick Richard. Today, we have Safe Streets Rebels, a group in San Francisco reclaiming streets from cars. Mike Eliason, founder of Larch Lab, an urbanism think tank focusing on eco-districts. And our own Ruthie Woodring, host of Valley Free Radio's Out There. First, Safe Street Rebels. I'm here with Brett and Maureen and Scott, Safe Street Rebels. That's right. And how long have you all been together? Almost a year now. So there's a street in San Francisco. It's actually a park that has a highway running through it called the Great Highway. And at the start of the pandemic, it was closed to all cars and it was made a place that people could use for recreation and get outside safely. And so approximately a year ago, last August, they reopened it to cars during the weekdays, Monday through Friday. And there were a lot of people, understandably, very upset about this. So I didn't actually know most of the group at that point. Some people put a call out to do a slow ride on the Great Walkway, or sorry, the Great Highway. We like to call it the Great Walkway because that's what it should be as a park. (laughs) So somebody put out on Twitter a call to do a slow ride as a protest when they put cars back on it. And we all met a bunch of people who are really passionate about transit issues and who are willing to do something about it. So since then, we've moved on to a bunch of different actions, but we also still are focused on the Great Highway, trying to make sure we make that into a park permanently. Is that also JFK? Not JFK. JFK is in Golden Gate Park, but this connects to the end of JFK. So it's about another approximately two-mile extension to what is easily the best car-free space in the city. Yeah, and they're related because they're both spaces that became car-free during the pandemic. So JFK Drive and Golden Gate Park for decades had been car-free on Sundays only, I think Saturdays during some seasons. But the idea to make JFK Drive and Golden Gate Park completely car-free all the time was also a pandemic thing for socially distanced exercising. But afterwards, we just realized we all loved it that way. And so... Very recently, I think it was last month, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors approved making Car-Free JFK permanent, but the fate of the Car-Free Great Highway, even on the weekends, when it's still Car-Free currently, the long-term fate of that remains up in the air. Oh, okay. So you have a shot at it being Car-Free permanently? The Great Highway? The Great Walkway? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do have a shot. In fact, the current city level representative of the area, we call them supervisors, but they're like a city council. Supervisor Gordon Marr recently stated that he supports the long-term future of the Great Highway being car-free. So he's talking about something that would happen in 2023 or 24 when, I'm not sure how in the weeds I should get. There's a part of the Great Highway called the Great Highway Extension that's to the south of the part that we're talking about that has already been slated to close because it's falling into the ocean. And so Supervisor Mars idea is like when that happens, then the Great Walkway could be also a 24-7 park. Hmm. So we're hopeful. (laughs) We have reason to hope because the supervisor supports it now, but we still don't know what's going to happen with it. And so we continue. You are hopeful that it will fall into the ocean? No, we're hopeful that it'll be car-free permanently and seven days a week, but we're not going to wait around for our supervisors or our politicians to 
make the decision. We will continue to pressure and we will continue our slow rides. So you do the slow rides, did you say weekly? It used to be. We've slowed down a little bit. When the, the decision was first made to return cars to the Great Highway on weekdays, we did it almost every week for a while. That became harder in the winter because always doing them at 6 p.m., it was after dark and it was really cold. But we're basically on an every month cadence now. When we do a slow ride, we basically get a bunch of people, we meet up on bikes, and sometimes we have a jogger jogging in front of us, and we ride our bikes on the Great Highway really slowly, mm-hmm. taking up the entire side of the street. It's got a median in the middle, so we block both lanes. And we ride so slowly that the jogger in front is setting the pace. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, we got to go faster or the jogger is getting away from us. And so we basically block traffic on there all the way from the north end at Lincoln Way to the south end at Slope Boulevard, which is about two miles. And then we turn around to do it again on the northbound side. And we're not breaking the law because as long as we keep moving, it's not breaking the law. What's that like? What's it feel like? <laughs> it's really empowering. It feels good. It sometimes feels scary. Other times it feels joyful. Sometimes it feels Mm -hmm. both of those things. The mood can vary a lot. Mm -hmm. It really depends a lot upon the two cars that happen to be following right behind us. If I may add, Scott, that one of the ways we've modified this and we encourage other people to do something like this is to have a pacer car behind us. Mm -hmm. In this case, we need two or three. And they do not identify themselves as being with us. Mm -hmm. And so now to other car drivers, they're just also stuck in traffic, but they're protecting us from car drivers trying to plow us down. And that is the way for other activists to take a highway, take a street that should be car free and have a joyous ride in safety. So that's the blueprint. That's the secret. I think Mm -hmm. that's the secret sauce. Well, you have the jogger in the front and the pacer cars. That's very creative. Something that I haven't mentioned is that for these two miles, the Great Highway has no entrances or exits for vehicles. So it has crosswalks, but you can't, in a car, turn off or onto it between Lincoln and Slope. So this stretch that we go, the cars behind us are basically just stuck. And it's the reason why our argument is that it should be car-free because people aren't using it to get their kids to school or such like that. It's just a highway that goes from one part of the city all the way down outside of our city and cars can use something else. And so this is a politically effective tool? I'd say it's an experiment. Would you agree, Scott and Brett? Yeah, I think one thing that we've learned over the last year is we are trying to find all the different ways that we can apply political pressure. And one of the things we've learned with the slow ride is it is good for putting pressure on politically, but also it's been an amazing thing for turnout and for getting new people activated in the group. And this has helped building a movement that is not just focused on the Great Walkway anymore, but all over the city. So as we do the other events across the city, we learn more about how we can put pressure on, who are the people to pressure, and we're trying to bring that back to the walkway too. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would add that I think my fear when there was the compromise where we lose the park on weekdays, my fear was that people would just get used to that. They would just accept that. A lot of people were sad. They missed being able to walk and stroll and roll and ride 
safely by the beach all the time during the week. But there was this possibility that people could be like, well, they made this compromise. That's just how it is. I guess that's how it's going to be from now on. And I think what was powerful about our protest and continues to be powerful is that we're not just accepting it. Mm-hmm. We're demonstrating to people that it can be different. We're turning it back into a park just temporarily for half an hour or an hour on Thursday nights to show people that we can still continue this conversation. We don't have to give up the space, but we can still fight for it to be a park. And we're doing that. And you could join us. And I think that that's really inspired a lot of people who have seen us there. Be like, oh, I don't have to just accept this compromise of losing the park on weekdays. This is still something that we can fight for. I'd like to add that this is no compromise because there are so few car-free areas in our city. This is not a compromise. If it actually was a compromise, bicyclists would have a lot more space and the freedom to get where they need to go throughout our city without the fear of being hit by a car. Our politicians call it a compromise so that it looks like we're being unreasonable. And that's a false word. So you had the park car free at one point during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's right. From relatively early in the pandemic in 2020. And it was actually Supervisor Marr who made the phone call. So the Great Highway wants to be sand dunes. Nature is Mm -hmm. continually turning it back into sand dunes. Regularly, it has to close to cars just because sand has blown onto it. And the city actually spends $300,000 a year just keeping sand off of it. And so Supervisor Marr just made a phone call to SF Rec and Park and was like, hey, I noticed you've been closing it to remove some sand. Why don't you just leave it closed for a while so people can exercise outdoors? And Mm -hmm. so from early 2020 until August 2021, it was car-free 24-7. And it was popular. It was at one point the second most popular park in San Francisco, only behind Golden Gate Park. But it was a highway? Yeah. And it's just a divided highway next to the beach that you can see the ocean from parts of it. Other parts, the dunes are too high, but it's just right by the beach. You can enjoy some of the cleanest air in the city. Wow. If you're out of your car. (laughs) If you're out of your car, otherwise you just drive through and that's it. You can't even stop. I wonder how the idea originally was to take the most beautiful place and use that for driving through. I guess there's a rationale somewhere. Well, the lust for movement of cars probably starting in the 50s, right? I've seen pictures. I think it goes back even further than that. And really what you're looking at now is almost 100 years of status quo of drivers expecting that. And you have some drivers where I will admit it can be a convenient route for them, but it is just an incredibly difficult route to maintain. And while drivers have so many other spaces they can take, there is no other place like this in the city. There's car-free JFK and that's it, really. So it's that almost 100 years of car dominance that we're trying to push back against. There's actually a really good podcast on the history of the Great Highway. The Outside Lands podcast a few years ago did a history of it, but it's really tied up with California's history of promoting the automobile because at one point we had too much oil and the price was collapsing and oil speculators were losing their investments. And so it's like, we need to create things that people can do that will drive demand for oil. So let's build highways everywhere. And so I think that the Great Highways creation is just a part of that era. And it was also a way of proving man's dominance over nature. We're going to turn these sand dunes into a highway. Yeah. Well, I want to go on one of these rides. 
How do you find out about them? Woo, our Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Twitter account. It's at Safe Street Rebel. And it's pretty much once a month. Does it vary? It's always on a Thursday. We've been trying to do third Thursdays. And we also have branched out from this to other Vision Zero actions, like vigils, remembering people who died in traffic violence. Who's in charge of that? Nobody's in charge. And that's kind of one of the things about our group. We are a collective, but there are no official leaders. And it's up to individuals who have been willing to take on organizing specific events and also the many, many ways that people in our group participate. Some people run social media, create videos for that. Other people show up to actions, block the street. Other people make art. And it's really been just an incredible group to be part of because I've heard about leaderless organizations and to actually see it work in progress has been fantastic. It runs on a lot of mutual respect and care for each other. And it's really an incredible group. Everyone's time and treasures are valuable. And yes, it's wonderful. And we don't agree on everything, but we talk to each other civilly and it's working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Safe street rebels. Did you say when you all began? When the so-called compromise, like Maureen said, it's not a good compromise, but when we lost the Great Highway Park on weekdays, it was in response to that in August 2021 that we first formed. Though and we have some then, older roots. From me, I have older roots <laughs> for advocacy in San Francisco. Yeah, some of us have been doing similar actions before, and some of us just started with this group. Yes. Well, there's a couple of brain children of yours, Marina, I want to talk about, but first we're starting to talk about the vigils. Okay. Yeah, Brett, that's his baby. (laughs) I try to not think of it that way, but it is definitely something that I care a lot about. In San Francisco, approximately 30 people are killed every year by car drivers. It's been unchanged since 2014 when they made the original Vision Zero pledge, which was we would get to zero traffic deaths by 2024. So for about eight years, they have made no, or even this year, we are making negative progress. Everybody who's bicycle knows the feeling of a dangerous driver passing you. And you see these news stories about bicyclists and pedestrians getting killed and is just incredibly frustrating and just feeling powerless about it. So after I met everybody with the slow rides, we have a bunch of people who really care about, I'll say transit and mobility issues in general. We're bicyclists, but we're also pedestrians, we're bus riders. And a bunch of people who really care about this. And a lot of people have really been touched by Vision Zero actions. There is a niche there that nobody was really hitting that addresses that combination of frustration and grief and finding some way to turn that into something, I wouldn't say positive, but productive. So starting last year, I think our first one was in November. We've been going out to the site of every traffic fatality in the city, and we've been hanging signs, we've been demonstrating at the intersection, and more recently, as we've been getting more momentum and more people and getting more comfortable with it, been blocking the streets. So we'll demonstrate, and then we will actually take the streets and block drivers for one light cycle. We are asking them to take one light cycle to take vigil for the people who have died on our streets. And the response that we've gotten from this, both in the group about how empowering it is, in the neighborhoods, every single neighborhood we go out to, the neighbors say, we know this street is dangerous. We want to see something done. So there's just a lot of energy around this that we are trying to harness. I want to push for Vision Zero in 2024. I'm not sure if we're going to make it, but we want to actually see that number start dropping. 
Well, that's when the city's supposed to have achieved Vision Zero? That was the pledge from 2014. To get there in the next two years would take a dramatic rethinking of our streets, but we are trying to figure out how we can put pressure and get that moving because mm-hmm. we had six people who were killed on San Francisco streets in May alone, mm-hmm. and it is just incredibly frustrating to continue to see this happen. We build our numbers with these vigils, and we also call out the supervisors whose district the deaths are in, and we use social media to call out those supervisors and apply pressure. And one of the things that we've learned as we get deeper into this, we keep trying to push for who's the person that we need to push to make changes. And constantly you hear different answers from it's the supervisor in that district, it's the people at SFMTA, the transit agency, it's the mayor. So we are trying to get a good handle on what are the things that we need to push for so that we can get changes made. I was on a call about one of the intersections where there was a recent traffic fatality and the fire department was the one pushing back on protected bike lanes. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of this. The deeper we get into, we discover the more layers to the onion, but we are determined to peel it and solve this problem. So that argument's been had in so many places about emergency vehicles and protected bike lanes, Mm -hmm. I would think it would be automated by this point. (laughs) Right? We have a lot of fire department macho types who live outside of our city and they get their testosterone boost by driving very large trucks. (laughs) Frankly, the fire department's been a bit of an enemy. And instead of saying, okay, we need to make these changes in order to make Vision Zero happen, they're saying, no, these are our fire trucks. These are what we need. And we're not willing to compromise on that. All right. Brett, would you talk a little bit more for the listeners about what supplies we need to create our vigils and what we learned when we first started mm-hmm. so that it could be replicated? Sure. One of the things that has been really powerful about our vigils is at the very first one, one of our members came to sign that said, a driver killed our neighbor here. and All of us were just kind of struck by the simplicity of it, the power of it. It names it a driver did it, but also it feels like it implicitly calls out car culture because that is just the overwhelming thing. We know that even if it wasn't this individual driver, there are other dangerous drivers because of how we design our streets. So one of the things we do when we go to an action is we hang these signs up. We march around with these signs while we're protesting. And at the very end, we have these thick foam board signs with the biggest markers we can find. We hang them up with some zip ties on the street poles in the intersection, and some have gotten torn down quickly in a few days. We've also had some that are up for months, and I find out that the markers fade eventually, so we have to go touch them up. Mm -hmm. But it's been a strong message because we hear from people who are saying, I saw this in this neighborhood across the city. So the message is getting out there. And one of our things is that we want people in the city to understand what the cost of everybody driving around is. If you're just flying through the street on your car, you're not going to appreciate that 30 people will die every year so that people can drive around. And we don't want to accept that. And we think if people are aware of that, it will help our message get across. Yeah. And a place as dense as San Francisco, you think you can. We're seven by seven. I was just going to say, I just passed one of the signs today walking to my friend's house where at 22nd Street and Harrison Street, a teacher, 23-year-old teacher who was going to teach some kids on a scooter was hit and killed. And we put up a sign there that says, teacher killed by driver. Mm -hmm. And the date, which was 3-1-22. 
that sign is still there. Mm. And so it's a horrible thing that that happened to think about the kids that didn't have their teacher the next day Mm -hmm. or the same day. But I think we're doing a good thing by making that visible. We not only come out on protests, but by leaving the signs, it leaves it visible for a while afterwards so that people can't deny this issue. Do you also do ghost bikes? Um, Not so much through this group. People in San Francisco do ghost bikes. And we recently had the San Francisco version of the Ride of Silence, where people installed some ghost bikes. I happened to be on the Ride of Silence. Uh, I didn't organize it. So I think some of the same people are involved in both, but that's not something we do through this group. Also, one thing that we've learned, and this was surprising to me, is it's relatively few bicyclists who are getting killed pedestrians are by far the majority of the fatalities. It's kind of shocking to me. Some of these have been pedestrians on sidewalks. And as a bicyclist, you feel that danger all the time. But the numbers have shown out that it's really pedestrians who have suffered the worst at the hands of drivers. I'm actually not surprised by that because far more people in San Francisco walk than bicycle. But that does bring up a related point, which is that the problem with dangerous streets isn't just the people who get killed. It's also all of the people who would enjoy biking around the city, enjoy having that option, that freedom, that mobility to get on a bike or get on a scooter or something like that, but don't do it because they don't feel safe. And that's also a problem with our current street design, the kinds of horrible, overwide, encouraging speeding street designs that we find ourselves coming out to protest. They're also discouraging people from riding in the first place. And in some ways, that's a greater tragedy. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for doing that, Brett, and all of you. Yay. Instead of screaming into the darkness, we're gathered in community and expressing our grief and doing something about it. And we hope that it inspires other people in other areas to try similar things. That's right. Everything we do is teachable. And we want to inspire others and give as much support and instruction as we possibly can. Almost everybody in the group is from San Francisco, and we do have some East Bay folks who come over. And there was a cyclist who was killed in Oakland two weeks ago, and there was a vigil this Wednesday. And it was one of the people from our group, and he organized one of these actions in the East Bay. He got more people out to the East Bay action than we've had at any of ours. So it was incredible to see this idea taking root across the bay, and maybe it's going to be going to other places. But just like we've seen in every neighborhood we go here, there is so much desire for change, and there is so much recognition of how dangerous things are, but people don't feel like they have an outlet for it yet. So we're really trying to harness that and give them an outlet. Mm -hmm. We should talk about people-protected bike lanes and street theater. Yes, thank you. It's one of my joys, that's for sure. And again, I emphasize that everything I thought of is reproducible. And we are here at Safe Street Rebel to mentor anyone who would like to learn from us. And we do this with love. So Maureen, you've been doing advocacy for a long time. And I'm going to ask what has to happen and how this has to spread in order to get to Vision Zero anywhere. I've created two types of actions. One takes a lot of people. That's the People Protected Bike Lane movement. And the other one is short and snappy, and it's called the Just a Minute Actions. The People Protected is a group of people. The more, the better. You need a lot of people. We'll stand on a painted bike line, and we use our bodies to create a protected bike lane. It is very visual. It works tremendously well, and it's excellent for social media. 
because you can see our vulnerable bodies are standing on that paint. And the message is very clear. How could you expect our vulnerable bicyclists with their children to be biking when there's only paint as protection? So where do you do it and how long does it last? For the people protected bike lane, we have done it in Valencia Street. We've done it on Polk Street. Well, I don't want to get too in the weeds on San Francisco streets, but let me tell you, it has worked. The supervisors see, oh, look, there's people who care and I can leverage that for something. SFMTA sees that they're being shamed, that a stripe of paint is not acceptable. That action gets results. And for potential activists, you call people to Twitter, you try to create a Google talk for people to sign. So then you can use their emails to gather for other actions. That's the way to begin. I've also created a jam. It's called Just a Minute Action. And with our pilot, we've discovered the best number is five people. All you need is five people, five reflective vests, one megaphone, and a few signs. And you and your friends can protect bicyclists and illustrate very clearly the need for cars to stop double parking in bike lanes. And how do you do that? It's so (laughs) much fun, guys. Please. So find yourself a street that doesn't have a bus going down it because we don't want to slow down the people on the bus. But the bike lane is frequently blocked by double parked cars. Now, that's your fishing ground. Now you go out there with a very minimum uh, reflective vest. So now you're looking official. You stand in the car lane. You're blocking the cars parallel to the car parked in the bike lane. You leave a space so that bicyclists can safely travel between you and the double parked car, but you are not letting car traffic continue through. Am I painting a word picture? So you find a car parked in a bike lane. That's right. And then you... We enter the car lane and we refuse to let cars continue through until the car that's double parked in the bike lane moves on. Wow. And so how does that affect the person who parked there? We are not there to shame that person on the streets that we are doing this. Often it is low-income people who are delivering food and pulling up to restaurants. We want people to support our local businesses, and we want those delivery drivers to have the infrastructure that they need, loading zones. But it has to be out of the bike lane for the safety of people in the bike lane. Mm -hmm. And there's an irony in the name just a minute, because that's often what cyclists hear, right? When somebody- Bingo, bingo. Yeah, yeah. I'll just be a minute. I'm just going to run in and get this order and I'll just be a minute. Wow. Just a minute is by far my favorite action because there's something so deeply satisfying about yelling it right back at cars. <laughs> we do it with a megaphone. For anybody who's an activist, you put somebody who's very chill on that megaphone so that they will not engage in anger to car drivers. 
So we explain, we are so sorry to be blocking your passage home. Everybody wants to get home safely. And we promise we will move just as soon as this dangerous obstruction in the bike lane is removed. So sorry for the inconvenience. So how long is the longest that you've had to do that? (laughs) Guys, how long? 15 minutes, maybe? I don't think it's gone on that long. I expected somebody to be there for a half hour sometime, but it seems like almost all of them are under five minutes. Maybe I'm missing some of the longer ones. I think the longest one I remember is the cop that was getting hot chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) We jammed the cop. (laughs) Well, I see a lot of pictures of police cars blocking bike lanes. That's right. And we're so sorry. It's important cop business. And we will leave the car lane just as soon as this important cop business is over. And we think it's a perfect example of one of our fundamental tenets is that the police aren't going to solve any of these problems. And in fact, they're going to make a lot more problems. Things that we want that will fix things like concrete street design changes, real baller. It's not these little plastic flex hit posts. We want to go for a enforcement-free solution where the street is already set up that you can't hurt bicyclists in the bike lane. You can't block it. And that's been something that we're trying to push no matter which street we're looking at. Is it a vision zero response? Is it a just a minute? We want to find a way to do this without getting the police more involved. We don't need them in traffic enforcement at all. And short-term parking for pickup drop-off? Loading zones. Yeah, I mean, I think the parking that we already have needs to be better managed. So one of the reasons why this double parking in the bike lane is so bad in San Francisco is that, so San Francisco is progressive in the sense that it has demand-based pricing for parking in some commercial areas. So if there's more demand to park there, the price will be higher to keep some units free on every block, kind of like Donald Shoup's ideas. But because of politics, they turn all of that off after 6 p.m. and on Sundays. So on Valencia Street, which is mostly a restaurant, a nightlife corridor, right as people are coming to dinner and then as they're going to the clubs and so forth, all the parking is taken with long-term parking because the city made it free. And then the same thing for Sunday at brunch. And so in the evenings, it's especially bad because these delivery drivers that are trying to pick up food and just trying to do the right thing and make a living, there's no parking for them to legally park in for a short amount of time. Um, so we need loading zones. We need to price the parking we have so that we don't create this dilemma. And so you have ideas, you have the solutions as well as pointing out the problem. I guess in a sense, but I think we're not like a think tank. We're not coming up with detailed solutions. Most of the time, we're not saying this is exactly how the street should be. And we've measured it out and so forth and so on. I think some of the people in the group, including myself, do that kind of thinking separately. But I think what our group is about is really demonstrating and showing people how they can take back street space, inspiring people, and ultimately calling for the traffic safety issues to be taken more seriously. And then the ideas part is not the hard part. Mm -hmm. I think the idea is that certain ideas are good ones, like real bollards, concrete changes, and that certain ideas are just unacceptable and useless, like painted bike lanes or bad flex hit posts. So we're trying to get people thinking in the correct direction, and then we can work from there. Yeah, that's the real problem is getting people motivated, caring, aware. When I first thought about the people protected bike action, I knew the double parked cars on Valencia Street were dangerous. And I had this idea, but I had no idea how to bring it to fruition. And it was only when I connected to 
a fellow activist named Matt Brezina, who knew how to collect people and get them motivated. Now I know. And one of the ways is when people hear themselves saying, I wish my supervisor would care, or I wish we had protected bike lanes here, or, oh my God, another death. Oh, that's so sad. That I would like to encourage people to take that thought a little further and say, how can I connect with other people who feel the same way? And with that connection, there's power. Thank you so much. And hopefully we'll talk again. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman. I'm the co-host and we are here today with Mike Eliason, who is the founder of Larch Lab. And he is a architect and an urbanist and a dreamer. And he is really leading the charge on sustainability, walkability, bikeability, and really just rethinking our cities. So welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you very much for having me, Lindsay. So I'd love to hear your big thoughts on eco-districts. Yeah, so in Europe, there's a large push. A lot of cities are heading this way to densifying the city. They're recompacting the city. And so there's a lot of effort around turning brownfields into greenfields. And so part of the way that they're doing this is through these eco-districts. A lot of times there'll be this multi-stage design competition process to deal with it. But the concept is that you will have this development that has housing, it has ample social housing, so there's affordable housing, there's a lot of open space, it's not a small park or whatever, it's usually like 40 to 60% of the land area in that eco-district is open space, and that can be public park, that can be semi-public courtyards, private garden space, but there's a plethora of open space and green space. There's a large focus on having car-free interiors. And so it's about either putting parking underground, which I'm not a huge fan of because of the carbon iceberg of parking here, inducing carbon emissions in the construction. There's the carbon emissions of sprawl and car ownership and all that stuff. A really big thing that they're doing right now is these mobility hubs. So it's kind of this above-grade garage. You build it so that things can change over time. You can integrate transportation hubs bike share, scooter share, community amenities. So it's kind of like workshops, kind of becomes this more holistic version of planning how we do transit and transportation. And so you'll have these kind of little micro hubs interspersed around the eco districts. So the concept is that you remove the cars from the interior of these districts, right? And so they become just quiet, right? Because you're using a little bit of the urban planning at times to kind of offset some of the noise of the construction. It's green, it's lush, it's dense, family-friendly units, it's really a way of recompacting the city to make it multi-generational, affordable, sustainable, walkable, livable, like all of these things kind of parceled together. And we don't really do this in the U.S. There's not really urban planning in the U.S. Like we have urban planners, but it's, it's usually lot by lot. There's no large scale concept for an area or a neighborhood that we would see. Some of the eco-districts in Vienna have wonderful concepts, living car-free or LGBTQ friendly, right? And so majority of the housing will be for like LGBTQ families or single parent. There are games that you can start to play, right? How can we make this even more innovative and affordable? We don't have the framework or even I think the language to talk about how we could be developing this way. It sounds so amazing. But if we don't have brownfields, we don't have acres and acres inside our cities. I know you had a plan in Seattle to reimagine, I think it was a freeway. Yeah. So we have a highway running through the middle of our city. It's one of the most dangerous roads. I think just even a couple of weeks ago, another resident was run over and killed by a car. It varies between four and six lanes and it's loud, obnoxious. It's also one of the few places in the city where we're zoned for density. So we are going to be adding a lot of housing. And so I came together with a colleague and we were like, look, if we're actually going to provide 
all of this housing a lot of it's going to be affordable housing. What can we do to make this a livable space? Because if I'm in affordable housing and I'm on a street, I don't want to have a place where my kids can't go outside because the cars are driving too fast. I don't want a place where I can't open my windows because of the noise or the pollution or the dust from tires and everything. And so we kind of put our heads together and said, look, we have this grid in the city. There are ways to mitigate some of the traffic. What if we just took cars completely off of this road? What would that look like? Really, it was about kind of pushing the Overton window so far so that we can bring it back and maybe have a conversation that's grounded on reality of addressing climate change and livability and all of these other issues. And so what we proposed was eliminating all cars, having a streetcar or a light rail run down the middle at grade, bike lanes on either side, widening the sidewalks, having cafes spill out onto it, ample green space. And so the idea was that this really becomes this dense, lush green quiet corridor that runs from the downtown core all the way up to the next suburb north of us. It caused a few waves. There were definitely some people who were really fascinated by it. But really for us, it was a kind of, how do we start this discussion? Because the city is going to be changing it. The state has given us money to start rethinking it. But if we're just going to beautify it and it's not safe, it's not helping with mobility, it's not someplace that people want to live or raise their kids, then we're not doing a value add. How do we bring value to this change? And that's really what the exercise was about. It sounds amazing. And obviously we're trying to do this in LA as well, the Livable Communities Initiative, which you are a part of. And it's just amazing that cities all over the world, Berlin is trying to do this. Paris is almost there. But there's so many things and you talk about that. There could be a promenade. You could go out for a jog or in the evening, take a stroll. I live in Larchmont in LA and every night we walk our little business district. And if you go out there, we don't go every night, but when we go, you will meet people who've driven 45 minutes. They'll be like four young people and they've driven 45 minutes to walk around Larchmont (laughs) because there's nowhere to walk. And I think about like, I just imagine a family living there. They don't need to own a car, which is super expensive. Gas prices are out of control. And the kids can bike everywhere, bike to school, bike to a friend's. They talk about free range childhoods. Like we've taken that from kids. And the reason is the cars, is cars are too dangerous. So we actually moved to Germany a couple of years ago. We wanted to live in a place where cars weren't predominant, right? The Altstadt in the city we lived in, Lansut, is car free. The only cars that are coming in are taxis, very occasionally, and then delivery. Transit went around it. Cars were forced to bypass it. And the minute the sun was out, even if it was cold, the place was always packed. Mm. Bars, restaurants, cafes, you know, there were like six ice cream shops on like this two mile stretch. Everything just spilled onto the street. And you could go and meet a colleague and not have to worry if your kid's playing a couple of colleagues or friends or whatever. Having that freedom, it's so lacking. We live in a quiet part of Seattle, but even here, we don't feel comfortable letting our kids just go out on the street because people use our neighborhood as kind of a bypass to the arterials. If there's traffic on the arterials, we'll just go fast to the neighborhoods and there's no diverters and roundabouts don't really work. It's still relatively isolating. I grew up in New York City and there were not a lot of cars and the cars went slowly and they stopped for pedestrians. Like they would just halt and now forget it. Everybody's just trying to get somewhere. Someone did a counter down in Avenue B and it turned out that there were more scooters and bikes than cars. And there were like twice as many pedestrians. Like the streets are owned by the cars, which are like a quarter of the people. 80% of people in Manhattan don't own a car. And yet 
everything is jammed up with parking and fast cars. New York to me is the most perfect place to just say, no, you don't get to drive in unless you have a really good reason. If you have a reason for sure. And they tried to get the delivery trucks at night. They just didn't enforce it. And it's like, why should you be able to drive a truck into Manhattan <laughs> in the middle of a work day? Do it at night. And they have cargo bikes. It feels like the solutions are right in front of our faces and you wish people could see it. Yeah, long agreed. I think Chicago is probably the other large city in the U.S. where it would be pretty easy to do. Manhattan, like you said, there aren't that many people that own cars. People walk. The transit's pretty good. It's relatively flat. I mean, there's some topography, but it's so much more amenable. And it's really like there's no leadership. Bloomberg kind of pushed a little bit here and there and helped change the conversation. But since Bloomberg, de Blasio, and he lived in Brooklyn. And so there wasn't a lot of effort around it then. We'll see if Adams does anything. He's at least started to talk the talk. I have a lot of hope for him. Yeah. But like with climate change, the IPCC's working group theory report was absolutely, we need to deprioritize cars on our streets. We need to unseal street, make space for street trees. The urban heat island effect is only going to get worse in a warming world. And so the Dutch, the French, and the Danish are really pushing the boundaries of this in Europe. Mumbai is doing a bit of work on this too. There's cities out there. They're doing this stuff. It's just, we put so many of our eggs in the wrong basket when it comes to prioritization and funding and I had hopes that Build Back Better would change that conversation a little bit, but not been passed. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Well, it's also like bikes. And of course, that's why I love bikes so much. Bikes are the key from everything we've learned from the Dutch is that if you want to scale transit, you need the micro mobility, aka you need the bikes and the bike lanes. And if you want to get people out of cars, you need transit and bikes. And then if you want to get people on bikes, you got to slow the cars down and give them a very livable, sweet street, as you say, with cafes and trees. And then everybody will bike. 80% of people will bike. But if you give them fast cars and crummy infrastructure, get somewhere between 1% and 8%. Yeah, it was eye-opening to live in Germany and see so many senior residents on cargo bikes. There were a couple of big hills where we lived, and they would hop on their e-bikes in their house up on the hill and come into town, do their shopping or hang out at a cafe or restaurant. And they'd hop back on their bike and just go. Right. It was so amazing to see there was that accessibility. There were also a number of residents who had mobility challenges and they had trikes and other mobility devices that helped them get around. And they didn't need to drive. They didn't need to rely on transit to do basic chores in that part of the city, at least. And so I think it really allows the opportunity to kind of expand to the city, hopefully is accessible. I know it expands accessibility because there are people who can use adaptive bikes, but a car is not a good fit. So it's such an amazing opportunity for so many people, especially people who want it. My kids don't want to drive. They're not getting their driver's licenses. And I think they said like 65% of young people don't even want to get their licenses, never want to drive and never want to own a car. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has been so interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm with Ruthie Woodring, a kind of spokesperson for everything that has to do with biking. Well, some things here in Northampton, Massachusetts. You founded Pedal People Bike Lab. You're working with Bikes for All. And you have some news today. Yeah, a couple of news items on the bike car crash front. One is about a cyclist, a Northampton cyclist, or a man riding a bike. Charlie Braun, who was killed in October by a motorist. And the motorist that killed him got sentenced in court last week. And then the other is about a friend of mine that I worked on, the, that I've been working on the Bikes for All project with 
uh, super experienced cyclist, bike racer my age, who was hit by a car last Saturday. He's alive. He's in the hospital. We hope recovering with some traumatic brain injury and a broken neck, but we think he's going to come through. Um, Salem, right? Yeah, Salem, Mazawi. You work with him on Bikes for All? Um, yeah, we actually just met pretty recently this spring on the Bikes for All project, but he's been in the area for a while, I think. He was a bike racer for a bunch of years, and then he sort of retired when he was 32 and 16 years off and now he's come back into he just started bike racing again and as someone who is car free he really wanted he wanted to get a reputation as a bike racer or get a platform through his racing and the platform being to show how great biking was for commuting and to address climate change but then now he's hitting in the hospital but we hope he'll come back he is not a bike racer but wants to become one just so that he can spread the word well, he was until he's 48 now, but he was until he was 32 and then he kind of got out of it. And oh. now he's getting back into it. So he, he's racing against a lot of younger people, but he was doing really well. He was getting, he was doing better and better till this crash. And he has a blog. Uh, yeah. It's called the got bike. Uh, I think it's at blogspot.org. The GOT stands for the guy on the bike acronym for guy on the bike. <laughs> because when he would go grocery shopping, and show up on his bicycle to get his groceries, which was unusual where he was shopping. The store employees would be like, oh, it's the guy on the bike. Yeah. You get a lot of that. <laughs> Actually, I don't so much here in Northampton because there's lots, there's lots of people on bikes doing that kind of thing now. And also because I don't really go, I don't go grocery shopping. <laughs> you don't go grocery shopping. That's... <laughs> Well, right now there's tons of fresh fruit, like mulberries and cherries. I also have a garden plot. And then um, I'm not a very picky eater and I'm pretty resourceful and there's a lot of waste going on. And I, I, I work in the waste stream. <laughs> Do you work in the waste stream? I work, yeah, so I haul trash with pedal people, trash, recycling, compost. And you know what they say, one person's trash is another person's treasure. Every time we talk to you, we're going to have to talk about that because it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I also, my, I live in a collective household. And so we get dry goods through a food co-op that we're members of, that, like a buying club where the food, the dry goods get dropped off here. At your whole life is just a reiteration of the same principles. But um, what is Bikes for All? Um, so Bikes for All is a project of the Friends of Northampton Trails. And the idea is just to collect unused bikes, have a group of volunteer mechanics to fix them up, and then redistribute them to people who need bikes. The bigger goal is to start some sort of bike co-op in Northampton, but the cost of space of a physical space to do that kind of thing is sort of prohibitive. So right now we're just operating out of someone's garage. There's no water, no bathroom. So we're just operating out of there as a place to fix bikes. And then when someone needs a bike and contacts us, we meet them there to hook them up with a bike. So you're doing good work. And Salem's laid up with a traumatic brain injury. Salem's partner at Dell had a post about it. After he got hit, she had posted to Facebook to let people know what had happened. And also because it was a hit and run. And as far as I know, there's, they still haven't found who did it. 
but there is some surveillance camera that the Grandy Grammy Massachusetts police surveillance camera footage that was put out with it showing a sedan speeding away at 4.47 in the morning, I think, and then showing a pickup truck that came by like an hour later and more later in the morning that looked like it was driving around suspiciously. Um, so when he was hit, he was hit from behind and then just left there and some neighbors found him, I don't know, an hour or two later and called 911 and, and uh, emergency responders came. Um, so Adele posted out that information trying to help track down the motors that hit him. People in the cycling community and friends have been wanting to know how they can be supportive. How can they help out? Can we bring you food? Can we start a GoFundMe page? Those kinds of things. Adele's been visiting Salem in the hospital every day and uh, basically said our material needs are okay, but the thing that Salem would probably want most, that would mean the most to him, is if you could ride a bike. <laughs> like if you're able, if you have the means, if you have the fitness, you can ride a bike because that was that was like his his mission, his goal, his belief in how to, how to create a better world. Um, yeah. Ed did Adele, after somebody's just been hit and run, you're encouraging people to get out and ride. There's kind of a. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She, she really didn't want people to be afraid because he got hit. And, and so she's like, the more of us that are out there biking, the safer it is for everyone. And also when you're out there biking, if you can wear a high visibility vest, uh, that could be really helpful too. Um, yeah. Well, and then this gets to the second story because the driver who hit Charlie Brown, they were sentenced recently. Charlie was, I think he was maybe 68. He was a musician, a local musician and biked many places, loved to bike. And he was riding up the main street, riding up Elm street in Northampton, a motorist failed to yield at a stop sign and just, went straight through the stop, stop sign and ran over him completely. According to the court records, she was in a 53 second FaceTime conversation on her phone. And she said in court that she looked at her phone at that time that she hit him. She just ran over him completely and he was killed immediately. Um, so I don't think it would have mattered what he was wearing in that situation. Um, Cause she was, yeah. sounded like she was just looking at her device. And this, that was broad daylight. That was like four in the afternoon, 4.30 in the afternoon, something like that. So what are your thoughts on that? The time that Salem was hit was dawn, 4.47 in the morning, right around the summer solstice time. Uh, it's such a beautiful time to be out, like dawn and dusk. If you're someone who like tries to live in harmony with nature, going out at these times is uh, it's just really special to see the change from light to dark or dark to light i don't want to posit how we know what salem was wearing or what he was doing he was on his home street because i really you know I, I don't want to get into any kind of like blaming the victim when these like beasts are roaming the public ways and can kill vulnerable people and animals at any time yeah i'm not sure where exactly to go with that except just to like reinforce the right of living things to exist on the earth without having to be lit up all the time. Um, also, I've had conversations with one of my coworkers, some of my coworkers, one in particular, my coworker, Ben, um, who about how cyclists should dress to be safe. And while wearing bright colors and visibility can save your life and can save someone else. And it can, it can make it less likely that someone else is going to have to live with 
manslaughter charge. I know a lot of people, especially older people, have told me they just don't see that well. Their vision's deteriorating and they're still able to drive legally, but it's really hard for them to see small things. Cyclists, pedestrians, animals, wearing something bright and visible can make it easier for everyone. But in the back of my head, I'm also thinking, like my coworker Ben says, well, if neon vests becomes a standard for cyclists or cyclists who can afford them or cyclists who like more culturally acceptable for them to wear those things like those cyclists may be safer but what about the cyclists that are just wearing regular work clothes um, or the cyclists you know they dress in black or green or gray or whatever does it make it more dangerous like if the expectation is that a cyclist is going to be bright does it make it less likely that motorists will look out for someone who's not wearing those things. I don't know. What do you think about that, Nick? I don't think it can be on cyclists and pedestrians to not get killed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I agree with you on that. And then to acknowledge reality, I wear high-vis. That's the difference between the world that we need and the world that we have. Yeah. Maybe we can just go with like medium bright, but not super bright. (laughs) (laughs) There's your compromise. (laughs) In the bike and pedestrian advocacy community, that's a real topic. You know, every time you see some Department of Transportation campaign about how pedestrians have to be alert and be off your phone, uh, or cyclists have to wear bright colors and have lights, you shouldn't be spending money telling victims how they have to not be victims when yeah. you could be changing the conditions. Yeah, hearing you say that makes me think about the women being told how to dress or not dress so they're not victims of like sexual assaults and things like that. You said it. That's a comparison. One quick thing I wanted to add about Salem is that I really identified with him. His thing sort of hits home with me. But also I think about him and how like we are all only temporarily able-bodied. Yeah. You know, I'm visiting my dad in hospice right now that's something i'm thinking about mm-hmm. yeah yeah we're at that age huh <laughs> well I'm, I'm not quite at that age yet but <laughs> neither, neither are you <laughs> but um, it's coming on the pipeline yeah. uh, who knows at what speed <laughs> and what about the the people who aren't completely able-bodied should they be able to bike and walk yeah i had a discussion with a friend of mine so a, a good friend of mine has visual impairment where he can't legally drive but he can bike and in order for him to bike safely with his vision he needs to be in the middle of the lane because he can't easily see like road hazards on the on the side or like the bike path there's too much small things going on not enough space there and so some like motorists or other cyclists will be like he needs to get out of the road um but if he's riding predictably where a motorist would be i see not entitled to that space All right. Well, thank you, Ruthie. And we'll see you on the street. Yeah. Thanks for talking again, Nick. And thanks for doing Bike Talk. And thank you for being out there. Sure. That's the name of your show, right? Oh, yes. Out there. You had to remind me. (laughs) You've been listening to Bike Talk. And this is the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. Check us out at biketalk.org. Subscribe to the Bike Talk podcast. Have a good week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedal. Yeah.
yourself apart. Oh, cut yourself apart.